0: Welcome to the Breakwater Podcast. Today I am joined with the Reverend Dr. Chris Corbin. He currently serves as rector, senior pastor of Trinity Episcopal Church in Oshkosh. On this episode, we will learn a little bit about who Chris is and his passions he brings to our community of Oshkosh. Chris is up next. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for being here. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. I'm glad to be on.
0: Would you mind starting us off with a little background on yourself for the listeners?
1: Absolutely. Uh, As you said in that wonderful introduction, I am the the rector at Trinity Episcopal Church. And rector is just sort of uh, an archaic English way of saying senior pastor of of the congregation. And that all gets to the fact that the Episcopal Church is... uh, the tradition that that maintains continuity with the Church of England in England. When it came over into the United States, it was the Church of England originally until the Revolution. And then we had to uh, sort of find our own way when we could no longer have English clergy coming and serving in our churches. So that is what the Episcopal Church is. I did not actually grow up either here in Oshkosh or in Wisconsin or in the Episcopal Church, any of those things. I am uh, originally from Florida and found my way here kind of uh, circuitously. But um, I grew up in Florida, went to a a small Methodist liberal arts school called Florida Southern College, which is uh, the largest one-site collection of Frank Lloyd Wright architecture in the world. Not necessarily the best, but the largest. Um, no, it's it's a really wonderful campus. I then went to Yale Divinity School, and then uh, after spending some time in Connecticut, took time and did a PhD in theology at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I have been involved in faith communities pretty much all the way through life. My dad's a nine Methodist pastor. So I grew up in churches and uh, I was actually just speaking to someone about this, that there are certain kind of cultural differences here in the upper Midwest. Mm -hmm. I spent three years in, three years is not the right number. I spent, um, I spent eight years, six years. I I promise I, I have some okay. kind of handle on my life. I spent uh Don't we all? my family, my my wife and I spent our first year of marriage apart while I was finishing up my coursework for my PhD. We were in South Dakota for um 8 years together. I was there with her for 7 of those 8 years. And so I was in the I was in South Dakota before I came to Oshkosh and then I've been here for just about a year, I was working for the Episcopal Church there at the diocesan level, which is the sort of overarching um, statewide organization of the Episcopal Church, and so um, we did a lot of uh, really interesting work. The Episcopal Church in South Dakota is 50% Lakota, Dakota, um, and so I got to spend a lot of time in a lot of cultural settings that I didn't anticipate myself being in when I went into this kind of work. A lot of it just kind of Um, came along uh, serendipitously. And I have noticed, though, that one of the things that's culturally different in the upper Midwest, South Dakota and Wisconsin, is that that people tend to be a lot more private than they were down South. Mm. And I think that that has been a big adjustment for me, specifically related to things Mm -hmm. like substance abuse, related to things like community building, is that... um, while there maybe are some benefits sort of Midwest nice that comes with that, mm-hmm. it also means that it, it can be more difficult to to in, tackle and, and engage with some of these difficult things. Um, you know, I, I was, I was speaking to someone today related uh, to housing actually, but that what comes along with that is a sense sometimes that you feel like what happens in life, what matters is what I can see right in front of me. And then mm-hmm. you just don't really kind of pay attention beyond that. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that that can be uh, a difficult thing to get over in terms of community building and awareness building and coalition building, all these things that I'm really interested in.
0: Uh, For us, and I I mean, one thing I want to go in depth as is that coming into our community, you give such a great perspective of, of an outside perspective, right? Uh And, you know, and that private piece of, and i think that goes along with stigma and that you know people don't want to talk about things that are happening yes um you know they're they're dealing it with them with themselves and by themselves um and covid so coming into the congregation you know just a little less than a year ago and you know noticing these trends and then also dealing with covid how mm-hmm. has that been for you
1: you know it was in some ways, the, the the COVID piece was not the most pressing concern. There was a lot of work to do here in the congregation about beginning to rebuild community mm-hmm. after having been gone for uh, a while. The congregation, though, really started to come back into in-person worship when I came on. So I, my first Sunday was... Uh, Palm Sunday, the Sunday before Easter,
0: mm-hmm.
1: last year. And that was the first significant in-person set of, of liturgical events that had happened. Um, that is to say worship events that had happened um, in a long time. And so there was a lot, of, a lot of joy, a lot of happiness, a lot of excitement about coming back in person. Mm-hmm. And I think that that had a tendency to sort of mitigate some of the, the anxiety that still existed around, was it safe to gather it again? we're going to be doing gathering that's strange. We couldn't do it exactly we were doing it, so there was still no music at that point. Even even in the small things that we were not able to take communion uh, the way that we're used to, which is either dipping the the wafer in the cup or drinking Mm -hmm. from the cup itself. Um, And so there was a lot of anxiety and uncertainty around what our life together would look like again, but I think that that was overwhelmingly uh, put on the back burner as a result of the the joy and then the happiness about just being in something new, having a sense that there was a future that there was a, a direction that we were going to go in that, that the door had not closed mm-hmm. on Trinity and that there was there was hope for us going forward and that's that's something that I've heard a lot since I've come back uh, since I've been here is that there is hope for the future hope in the in the community. That said, I, I do think that both here at Trinity and then also in the community at large, there's a lot of unexamined uh, stuff. I don't know if, I, if I'm uh, competent to diagnose it as trauma, but there's a lot of stuff mm-hmm. that is related to the disruptions of COVID that has gone unaddressed. Um, and and I, I have, again... I, I'm not clinically able to diagnose this, but I, you see sorts of flare-ups of frustration or anxiety or um, interpersonal conflict that seems really misplaced. It seems mm-hmm. that it, it it's um, a kind of frustration that is built up over other things. And I wonder how much of that um, is, one, just the fact that there were two years basically when people weren't living their lives in the way they normally were at Explated. all. Um, but I wonder also how much of it is that there was real disruption that, that there was financial disruption. There was personal routine disruption. There was uh, health disruption. There was death. Almost everyone has had someone that they know in some circle die as a result of COVID. And what I've seen is that we kind of just, picked up as though we had shut the church down for a really long after-Christmas vacation or something like that, and that there there has not been as much work around how do we actually process this as a community? How do we actually deal with what is this done to us, not just as individuals, but as a as a collective body? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's work that I think is going to need to be done going forward. Now, the, the plus side is that I um, don't have any of the memory from before, and so it's not like I carry with me a lot of grief about not being able to do the things mm-hmm. that, that maybe happened in the past. And um, I, I think that that's a real blessing. And so this is to get all the way back to the question originally, You know, what has it been like coming in in the middle of all this stuff? I, I, I think that it's actually been largely a blessing, that, that it's given an opportunity for a, a kind of a hard reset there's um, That breakdown of the memory is bad for community, but it can also offer some goods because it allows you to shed maybe unhelpful traditions and narratives and begin to live into um, the world as it is actually around us as opposed to the world as it was in the late 90s or the world as it was in the late 60s or, or whatever the kind of golden age was. Um, you, you sort of pick your time... Um, when when there are these bumps and these these sort of surges of of churchy energy in our communities, that that having that hard hard reset allows us to come back and have almost a a, a mentality of of real renewal for for the the community here together. But losing memory also is bad. <laughs> I mean, there's there are bads to it too, um, and I think that. One of the things that we've also seen is that some of the programs that maybe would have had a more organic decline or death, or you would have been able to to actively see that process of transformation into something new or transformation in out of um, doing the programs that were being done, they can't be done that, you know, we stopped, we didn't restart those because we don't have necessarily the people. There were people mm-hmm. who were involved in some of these programs who have died Um not necessarily COVID related, but just age related. But. And you didn't as a community have the chance to sort of grieve that program together in real time. And so it's I, I think sometimes it's not unlike when you when you have a funeral where there's no body that you don't have the same kind of closure because you think, Oh, but I know I know intellectually, I know cognitively that this was no longer a viable program, but I didn't actually see the the viability go. It feels still significantly like mm-hmm. we shut down and now a decision was made that we're not going to do this, not that the program really wasn't viable anymore. So that's one of the negatives that I think has come about from sort of restarting uh, a, a kind of hard restart after COVID. Not after, and I guess that's the other thing. I, I'm big on not saying post-COVID, it's, uh, I I, th- I use language of COVID managed world, that we're in a world that has mm-hmm. COVID, but we're beginning to live more and more into how do you manage COVID in the world as opposed to COVID crisis world.
0: Yeah, I, don't, I, I think so much of our life too, right? We just, this, this happened and then we're just expected to move on. We're supposed right. to, you know, continue to show up, work, life home and just almost act like it wasn't there but i i like your perspective of the positive that you bring of that this can be a fresh start of not you know necessarily knowing what it was like before but being able to bring new practices new connection right into your congregation
1: and i think that the other side is that it's not like the grass would have been greener in some other past year mm-hmm. this is a worldwide pandemic Everywhere was affected by it. I was leaving a place that was affected by it. It's not as though coming into Oshkosh, uh, you know, it's not as though Oshkosh uniquely had this COVID mm-hmm. thing that it went through. And so I think that that is also a good. Is it's not it's not as though there's ever any sort of sense of resentment of oh well if I stayed in South Dakota or if I'd gone to some other mm-hmm. position, I wouldn't have had to have dealt with what does it mean to come out of COVID. That this is. This is a feature that is across professions, that is across regions. Uh, There's no part of anyone's life that has not been affected.
0: (laughs) So going going to Breakwater. Breakwater's tagline is a community together. We work on substance use prevention, particularly youth. I mean, I know an interest of yours is community involvement. And why for that is a big priority of your work?
1: Well, I think would say that the, the main reason that community involvement is a big part of my work is because fundamentally human beings are created, we believe, for community. That we're not meant to be isolated, monadic, uh, uh, self-contained individuals, but that we are meant to live in these overlapping networks of interdependence. and. Um, the real human flourishing, and this is sort of a, a trend that's in, in theological circles and some some church circles is talking about flourishing in human life. And I guess this is something that's in a, in the bigger world of philosophy and psychology and, and um, sociology is, is, is a focus on human flourishing. But that human flourishing requires being with and for other people. Mm-hmm. And you can't do that without, as it were, boots on the ground, life in community with other human beings. Um, and I think that one of the things that I love about Trinity is that it is positioned in downtown Oshkosh in the um, symbolic heart of, of the community. And so we're able to see, and if, if we open our eyes, well, if we open our eyes, we're able to see, the good, the bad, the ugly, the um, the beautiful mess that is human life together. Mm-hmm. And not just human life, but human and, and other forms of created life in Oshkosh. And um, you can see, uh, I, I sort of say, say it's interesting being positioned between uh, Christine Anna and, and Town Motel. You can kind of see um, both... Breakdown and resilience, and uh, the real potential for human um, uh, love and compassion, and um, working for for healing um, on one side, and then you see uh, sort of where there's just almost pure breakdown mm-hmm. of human community and. Um the ability to rise up and work together to to address the needs of the most marginalized and um and most vulnerable in our community on the other side and and so you see the the sort of triumphs and the the failings of this experiment in life together being in this place.
0: I think that's really cool. the dynamic and I don't know. I kept thinking about just the dynamic of of individuals in our community and I go back to COVID and connection and I mean, community is so much about connection and, and feeling like you're a part of something, mm-hmm. right? And and you feel like you have somebody to go to and connected to certain things, whatever that may be. And, and f- through COVID, you know, that the isolation happened and people felt isolated and, and like they couldn't connect.
1: Right. Well, and it's, it's not just about spiritual flourishing in my Line. I mean, we we accept insofar as spiritual to me is about the sort of whole integrated person. When people talk about the spiritual, I don't think of a, a separate dimension. Right. I think of, oh, spiritual. What we're talking about here is the whole integrated person, um, and out of that, uh, one of the things that I have recently come across, and it's it's brought up in the book Bowling Alone, which was hot at least a decade ago when I was in. Um, Seminary, and then the couple of years before that when I was in undergrad but I think has um, continuing resonance but that there's a uh, points to the study about the um, Rosetto effect Rosetto I think is the it's, I think this is the name Rosetto is a community in Pennsylvania and it was a really close-knit Italian community that maintained a lot of the traditional um, I think, northern Italian life ways, but the, the traditional life ways that were brought over. Um, and one of the things that was noticed during the, this life together there was that in this close-knit community where there wasn't a lot of economic disparity, people were, in sort of true Mediterranean fashion, in up in each other's business all the time. Um, they spent a lot of time together. There wasn't, in in the way that it's been described, there wasn't the kind of keeping up with the Joneses, mm-hmm. um, uh, Constant consumptive competition, um, that rates of heart attack were significantly lower. I think that they had 1% as opposed to the 2% that was the overall United States average. And the really fascinating thing is that as this sort of traditional, highly communal way of life, highly integrated um, way of life started to break down, people from this community began to exhibit rates of heart attack that were the same as the larger, um, American population, but that it, it was not tied to just like Mediterranean diet or something like this was a, this was a group that ate a lot of hard cheeses and sausage and smoked cigars and drank wine overwhelmingly. So there was Mm -hmm. all the, you know, there was all these marks that should have been detrimental to heart health. Um, High consumption of alcohol, high consumption of of cholesterol and saturated fat, and yet social cohesion seems to have been the thing that kept them healthy. And that I think that that also relates back to some of the stuff that I've at least, and, and I might be, I might be talking pseudoscience here, but I think I've seen some work that higher, um, a, a higher level of the sort of ill health effects that are related to poverty can be traced back to stress and dislocation as opposed to even uh, malnutrition or mm. to uh, other physical markers for health. And that, that community is one healthy community is one of the most important things for that total integrated spiritual health for people. Um, and, and has tendrils in emotional, in um, physical, in obviously social health. And, mm-hmm. and so community is really important. And I think um, in your work, part of the reason the focus is because community can help make or break whether or not people are able to break uh, addiction cycles and mm-hmm. um, the the work that's been done on seeing how important social networks are for either reinforcing um, addiction or helping to free people from addiction is really important.
0: And I think breakwater has different sectors. Um, And I, I keep thinking of, you know, sometimes certain people are said to be the people that can solve all the things, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if you just show up to treatment, you could get better. But a really interesting thing about Breakwater is that we involve all different sectors of the community, from faith-based, to law enforcement, to media, to schools, to parents. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it takes more than just one person to change the dynamic of the community. Yep. Um, and I think that can, that can be in a lot of things that we work on and a lot of priorities what perspectives do you see in faith-based communities building community or working on improving community conditions?
1: Yeah, that's a that's going to be, of course, a, a question that depends on the faith tradition, although I think that that most, if not all, of the faith traditions that are represented in the Oshkosh community have resources from within their traditions are drawn as to why love of neighbor Aiding the poor, aiding the marginalized, building strong community are all important things. Um, I think that, again, one reason is because we believe deep down that human beings are created to be in relationship with each other and to, mm-hmm. to, to be in the messiness of community building and that we are not meant to have hermetically sealed lives Meaning that we are supposed to be in the messiness of each other. I I mean that that sort of metaphor, um, pushing it down. Right, that we are not meant to have sterile conditions that we live in. We need to have each other's germs. <laughs> we need to have mm-hmm. um, that 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 messiness emotionally and physically and, and everything all the way through. But that flies in the face of a lot of dominant American values that uh, that want to present a particular picture of both self-sufficiency and of um, sort of physical health and perfection, um, that human life is not something that is primarily meant to be managed. And I think that that's often the way that we approach it in our sort of consumptive and our highly... Um, Technocratic society around us that human life is something that's that's meant to be lived, um, and that's always going to entail with it uh, risk and vulnerability. But that you're not going to have flourishing without that. That that the attempt to mitigate risk and mitigate risk and mitigate risk. And now I, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take proper medical precautions, say in the middle of a pandemic. Mm-hmm. But in general, the, the 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 attempt to sort of find technical solutions and mitigate risk and, and seal ourselves off and find our, uh, find ways to try and not have to rely on others because that's dangerous and they might let you down um, fundamentally means that we won't ever actually live fully flourishing lives. Um, and I think that that's based in our tradition. You know, I, I just preached a wedding this weekend and in my sermon I talked about how uh, in the very beginning in the Bible in Genesis, um, God creates Eve because it was not good that Adam was alone that that God saw that human beings uh need to live together in community with each other and again, I think that that's something that a lot of uh if not all faith traditions are going to do they're 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 going to point to different ways in which the human being is not meant to be enclosed and cut off from other people, including the messiness of other people. Um, And what's fascinating, too, is I just got done reading another book um, called The Master and His Emissary, and in this book, it it talks about the ways in which um, music, particularly, is historically and anthropologically something that has bound communities together, that, that singing together helps to create a sense of social cohesion and that one of the few places in our society anymore where that can still happen in a non weird way is faith communities that that's one of the few places where people come together to experience music in a non entertainment or performance-based way but as a actual communal activity mm-hmm. um, and so I you know I think that That's one of the things that our our faith communities have to offer. Um, I don't just mean the music, but I mean that we can continue to be one of those places that pushes against the idea of monadic individualism, pushes against the idea of um, sort of pure bootstrapping, rugged individualism that uh, I think ultimately leads to um, a lot of despair and dislocation.
0: Thank you. Breakwater is focusing on reducing and preventing adult and youth substance use. How do you see the connection between substance use and other issues?
1: yeah, so I mean i don't want to I don't want to speak out of turn clinically, and so i'm I'm not going to put any sort of absolute stamps on, on what this is, but I do think that, um, again, in some of the reading that I've, that I've been seeing, um, it is not just sort of an easy matter of chemical dependence or of, you know, you get hooked on this, sort of the, 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 at least the model that I got, uh, I picked up through D.A.R.E. and other programs like that was this sort of like fear-mongering thing of, you know, mm-hmm. you try this thing once, you're probably going to get hooked and you'll never be able to stop anymore. Um, but that, that substance abuse often is a, um, is a response to breakdowns of, of health. It's a, it's a way of treating um, things that people are not able to have managed in more healthful ways as a result of breakdowns in their social network, in their physical network, in their, um, in the, in government, you know, it's, it's responding to senses of despair over, um, economic and material anxiety. It's, uh, responding to senses of despair over meaninglessness in the world, whether that's conscious or, or non-conscious. It is a, um, attempt at, uh, either numbing or sort of hyper sensation as a result of a numbness that that comes around. And I think that um, it, it is something that occurs because of multifaceted breakdowns of the the world in which we inhabit. It's not, um, as I think, unfortunately, faith communities have often been unhelpful in, in propagating this view that it's just sort of an, an individual moral failing that well, why don't you just stop it mm-hmm. it's similar to how I think I've seen um, again unfortunately disproportionately people of faith uh, or at least Christian people I, I, I can't speak for other faith traditions but at least Christian people sort of look at mental illness as though this is just sort of an individual moral failing an individual choice that why don't you just decide say in the case of depression to stop being sad um, you know why did you um, why did you make the one-time choice to get on this, terrible thing. And if you only had more responsibility in your life, if you only had a better sense of of your obligations or of moral duty, then you wouldn't be using anymore. Um, and I think that that just, it, it is probably pragmatically unhelpful for helping people since that is a, a, a divisive thing and something that cuts them off from networks of support and care that could help <laughs> alleviate the underlying problems that have led to um, desires either to begin or continue. Abusing various substances, and I think that it it is unhelpful because it misdiagnoses the problem. I don't mean to say that there's not ever any aspect of personal responsibility involved in this. I think that we um, do everyone a disservice by removing any conversations around personal agency. That I think that takes away from human dignity and and sort of moves everyone into only being purely victims of circumstance, which is I don't think that's not conductive to human flourishing either, but that we don't need to get so caught up in the question of moral blame. We need to be looking at it, uh, I think you were we were saying before the podcast began, and talking about your public health background, from a sense of, of public and communal health, is that we have hurting members of our community, how can we begin to build a community that can Lead to their healing and flourishing, um, and some of this comes comes out of the the fact that I think Christianity, particularly, or I particularly is the wrong word. Um, I know Christianity. That's the faith tradition that I come from, and Christianity is founded fundamentally on the notion of radical forgiveness, right? And so it's always interesting when. Um, there's so much work that has to go into figuring out what exactly are the lines of of. blameworthiness, uh, sort of saying we need to push back and, and get to a place where we can say, well, it's not really the person's fault mm-hmm. before we can begin to look at treatment um, because somehow people who have made bad decisions don't deserve treatment and only people who have made decisions that aren't within their control do. And I think that it's... it's remarkable and astonishing and deeply troubling and saddening to me that often Christians are the ones who feel the need to make these boundary markers about good and bad, or um, deserving and undeserving, or at fault and not at fault, because at the core of our story um, as Christians is the notion that we are radically forgiven. Rowan Williams, who is the former Archbishop of Canterbury and sort of the spiritual head of the Anglican community in the, in the tradition that the Episcopal Church is part of um, said when you come into into church when you come into Christianity you will not be told and I'm paraphrasing here you're not going to be told you're not guilty what you're going to be told is you're loved that we're all guilty we all bear guilt we all bear guilt you know specifically in relationship to the the in the Christian story of the death of Christ but the the Bigger thing is in that moment of judgment is the simultaneous and much bigger m- moment of mercy and forgiveness. That God's yes is always much bigger than the no, whether that's our no or God's no, but the yes is always so much bigger. And what that opens us, should open us up to, is a place of saying we don't have to be concerned about dessert anymore. We don't have to be concerned about whether or not people. Uh, are in this condition because of their own choices or not? What we can be concerned about is engaging in the work of healing the world, of continuing that mission of of that begins with forgiveness, but that mission of of grace and mercy that is related to the idea that for for Christians we are engaged in this, uh, to to use Saint Paul's terminology, ministry of reconciliation, and that ministry of reconciliation is about helping people to come into. Greater health. It's not about giving people a list of of right and wrong and saying you're okay if you follow this list, um, and you're you're damned if you if you don't follow mm-hmm. this list. Um, it's about saying how can we work with you as an individual and you as part of a, a larger community and interconnected community to bring more flourishing and more. Life and more health into these spaces. And so, you know, I think that that's, I guess that's what I would bring sort of saying from a faith community perspective, from a Christian perspective, engagement with substance abuse is really important because substance abuse is indicative of, it's symptomatic of places where there is harm, places where there is death, places where there is um, a breakdown of community and health. And that means those are places where we need to love on people and give. Um, give resources and give uh, space for people to come into health of lurching, not cut them off out of some misplaced notion of moral purity or a need to keep ourselves from this messiness that is human interconnected life.
0: I really like that you brought that up because so much of our work is stigmatized when we work with substance use. It's saying to that individual, you know, you can just choose to stop at any time. Right. Um, When we come at it as, you know, this is a disease. Mm -hmm. Um, People look to substances to fill a void or, you know, it becomes a habitual habit um, that they need to continue to using these substances. And I think being able to see that person, and we talk a lot about humanizing people, um, that they're not just you know, their substance use, they're not just their addiction, but being able to step back and and really see that person as a whole yep. and be able to help them. So I love that you brought that perspective up because it's not sometimes the always the perspective that we get from individuals in the community.
1: Right. Well, and I'm, I'm also sort of I, I just finished Atomic Habits, too. I know. I'm talking about all these books. that I
0: am I actually just read Atomic yeah. Habits. And so Great in book. Atomic Habits, mm-hmm. he brings
1: up the example of um, the study on heroin use among soldiers coming back from Vietnam, um, and how something like 90% of soldiers who returned, who had been using in Vietnam, were able to just stop, right? Which, which flies in the face, I think, of a lot of popular con- misconceptions or conceptions about how um, opioids... Function, but that um, the point being that in that if you remove the person from the particular network and environment in which use is encouraged and triggered, you're able to um, much more quickly help lead to a place where someone doesn't feel the need to, to use anymore but I think the other point that and this is a point that I think that is missed in atomic habits is they were also in the middle of a war right when they were it wasn't just that they were in a different environment is that they were in an environment of sort of constant stress constant trauma and then even mm-hmm. though there was still stress and trauma to deal with when they came back and there was still uh, I mean and this I think this is fascinating particularly with Vietnam because it's not like World War II where people came back to great renown and and sense of uh, being heroes and yet still being able to come back to a place where they weren't actively in a war zone anymore, that helped to eliminate the need to use and, and 90% of people were able to, to stop. And I think, again, that gets back to the both the interconnectedness of environment and community and networks of relationships Mm -hmm. that can reinforce use and also can take it away, but also the ways in which people are using in response to loneliness and trauma and violence and uh, despair.
0: So we talked about this. Do you have any more words of, you know, how can people stay involved and be involved in this? Is there any more words? You know, we kind of talked about it a little bit throughout this entire podcast, is building community. Anything else that you would like to add to that?
1: I think that the important thing about building community is, so two things, not the important thing, two important things. One is that you need to just do it and realize that the search for your perfect community is always going to lead to despair. That because of the way in which we are all complex individuals who are butting up against each other with all our uniqueness and our own particularity, which means that we're all going to bring our own preferences, we're all going to bring our own beliefs, we're all mm-hmm. going to bring our own perspectives, that we're n- the only perfect community that will exist would be a community that's only a bunch of me's. And even that's not the case because we all know that we have conflicting desires and and cross-grained um uh beliefs and 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 internal lives and to say that that's all to say that stop allowing the perfect to be the enemy of the good and just get down to trying to find and build a better community where you are rather than seeking out the ideal community that isn't near you yet, or that, you know, trying to escape community rather than build community where you are, I think, is is a really dangerous thing, because then it turns community into just another commodity, another consumer good for us to um, to have, and will ultimately prove itself to be unfulfilling. Um, And I guess the second point, then is sort of related. I I guess I have the two points built into that is that stop looking for the, the perfect community and begin working on the good community where you are. And then also be prepared for disappointment. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a theologian and was a a martyr. Um, He was a a German theologian during world war II who is most famously known for having um, been a participant in the plot to, to assassinate Hitler and was executed for his participation in that plot. Um, he basically says in a really famous book on community called Life Together that the first thing you have to do in terms of building good community is to dash all of your dreams about what that community can be to the ground because it's never going to live up to those expectations. Mm-hmm. But that once you're able to do that, you're going to be able to flourish despite the frustrations, despite the 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 difficulties, because you're able to actually begin living in the reality of what community is, which is towards our flourishing. We're meant to be in community together, but that as long as you're always allowing that ideal to be out there, you're going to be kind of drawn out of the community that you're actually in. And so the, the other thing is just be prepared for disappointment. Anticipate that you're going to be frustrated and, and mad, but that you realize that There's not another community that you're going to go into that's going to be better. And the other option of just increasingly retreating into yourself as an isolated individual is even worse than, Mm. than the frustrations of community. And so those two points is that start building good community where you are and be prepared for it to disappoint you, but it'll be worth it.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to thank you so much for coming on this podcast and for your, your insight. Um, this is hard work. I mean, it's a lot of work, but being able to talk about community and and being able to connect like we are right now is just so important. Uh, If any of you out here have resonated with this podcast, we will have Chris's info in our show notes. Thank you again.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Welcome.